Good evening. I'm Karen Yakbuski, and with me are Kristen Marchand, Danielle and Roger Paul, and Heather Paulkin. We're all members of the Apiongo Readers Theatre, a volunteer group dedicated to performing works of classic literature and local history. Tonight, as we stand here in the old Barry's Bay Railroad Station, we're here for a very special birthday celebration. You see, 125 years ago on this very day, the front door of this old station officially swung open for the first time. It welcomed countless passengers bound for glory along the new Ottawa, Arnprior, and Parry Sound Railroad Station. It was one of 30 such stations that J.R. Booth had built to service his 264-mile-long OA and PS Railway, that when he added his 183-mile Canada Atlantic Railway, became the longest private railway in the world. Yes, you heard me right. This little station once serviced a private railway that ran for nearly 450 miles, and in doing so, it helped unite the Great Lakes to the Atlantic seaports of Halifax and Boston. In effect, the OA and PS helped Booth create one continuous river of commercial freight that passed through Barry's Bay from Chicago to New York, Vancouver to Halifax. Once upon a time, this little station, less than a thousand square feet at its core, was part and parcel of J.R. Booth's world-class transportation industrial complex, so vast in its economic might that it easily rivaled the great American railroader, Andrew Carnegie. Yes, unlike New York City, we are not left here tonight with a building that rivals Carnegie Hall. Yo-Yo Ma will not be performing here tonight, unless, of course, someone has brought a CD. Rather, we have, on the surface at least, the quietude of this little station, broken only by our frail voices, and the old stories of our own local culture and heritage. Ironically, however, it turns out that the sound of us sometimes is much greater than the sound of the sum of all of the parts. Yes, it's true. This station is the last one standing. The last one out of all 30 stations that once proudly supported the Booth Empire. That certainly must count for something. Yet that's not why we're here. First, this station's four old walls are made up of more than rusty old nails or creaky timbers. If you listen closely, you'll hear an echo 
an echo that sounds like so many stories about some of the finest, most interesting people who have ever passed through these walls. This station is really not about one man's story. No matter how interesting one might think the story of J.R. Booth might be, if you listen very closely, you will understand that this old Barry's Bay station represents a thousand and one arrivals and departures. It's a place redolent with particular history, known well to those old ghosts who still haunt our history. Among them, no doubt, will be J.R. Booth himself. Where else could he go? If not to the last OA and PS station left standing. So in an effort to celebrate this station's birthday, if not conjure up a few old ghosts, we thought we'd give you a little insight into what it must have been like here during those heady days back in the autumn of 1894 when that door back there first swung open and somebody yelled, All aboard! First, that eastbound train to Ottawa probably carried out of here any number of the 2,000 navvies who would return to the nation's capital around this time every year. The navvies, of course, were the day laborers who had swung their pickaxes and sledgehammers all spring, summer, and autumn long, every year between 1892 when construction first started and 1896 when the OA and PS was finally finished. If you saw them boarding a train out there on the platform, they might remind you of that famous song about John Henry, that spike-driving man, who made all navvies proud of what they could accomplish. They were hard-driving men who actually built the OA and PS back in their day. More than 2,000 navvies had been swarming up and down the ever-expanding OA and PS that spring, summer, and fall of 1894. But by October 1st, it was the beginning of the end of their work season. Imagine them, if you will, as a few of these tired old workmen wearily boarding that evening train in Barry's Bay to began the slow trickle back to the nation's capital. Yes, their working conditions were next to horrible by today's standards. And yet, they were conditions pretty much standard for their day. Crammed into bunks wherever they could find a place to bed down among the ever-moving railroad line, often working six-day weeks, 10 to 12 hours a day, and long into the night very often. It was surely not a job for the faint-hearted or weak-kneed. Diphtheria, smallpox, yellow fever, even malaria could be their welcome at the end of a long work day. Or sometimes even worse, as you may find out. One way or another, by August 24, 1894, a ribbon of steel rail got laid into Barry's Bay. And so, it was time for J.R. Booth 
and his team to build this station. To do so, Booth called up two brothers, Archibald Tomlinson and his younger brother George, 14 years his junior. These boys came to Barry's Bay to build the next station, our station. Now the Tomlinson boys were no rank amateurs. They were seasoned carpenters, boat builders, tradesmen, tradesmen from Beckworth down near Carlton Place. In 1892, Archie and George had become the station builders of choice for J.R. Booth, who was himself a carpenter of considerable talent. Given this fact, it's quite unlikely that the Tomlinsons would end up designing and constructing upward of 24 of Booth's OA and PS stations without some very direct input and oversight from Mr. Booth himself. Now, the Tomlinson design, if it can be called that, was based on what can best be described as a unique story and a half. A main floor that included a waiting room for passengers, a central telegraph and ticket office for the station agent, and a baggage room, all those on the main floor, and half hidden under the roof upstairs, living quarters for the station agent and his family. There were at least 14 other OA and PS stations following this unique Tomlinson design. Early that summer, the brothers had finished building similar stations at Golden Lake and Killaloo. They would do so again in 1895 when they constructed the stations at Wilno, Madawaska, Whitney and Canoe Lake. In fact, they built 14 other stations with that distinctive Barry's Bay design. They were simple enough to construct back then. There was no need for electrical wiring. The stations were illuminated by coal oil lanterns. Nor was there any real need for indoor plumbing when outhouses were commonly in use. So the whole building took barely two months to erect. Begun in late August, the Barry's Bay Station was completed by the middle of October 1894, about a week after it officially opened for business. After 125 years, this station is still here. The only one left of its kind though not much else remains. There's no more OA and PS, no more J.R. Booth, no more Tomlinson Brothers. In fact, no more railroad tracks outside this station. The main line and two sidings were lifted decades ago. Certainly there are no more navvies and their famous sweat equity putting their hearts and souls into earning their daily bread, building one of the greatest railroads of North America. At one time, the OA and PS carried over 40% of all the Western grain harvested on the prairies and carried more white pine timber than the world had ever seen before and probably will never see again. 
timber that ended up in unexpected places. For instance, lining the decks and bulkheads of the Cunard Line, the most famous ships at that time, the Lusitania and Mauritania. In between those heavily laden freight trains that passed through Barry's Bay upwards of 20 per day, there were always a couple of passenger trains carrying usually a mix of local people, people from far away who saw us as exotic, the way we were more often than not. We saw them as exotic. Some wayfaring stranger with a ticket to ride through God's own country. So let's turn back the clock a little right now and pretend that we can still hear the clickety-clack of one of those freight trains going by. And amidst the rumble and rattle and roll, we're sitting here in this old OA and PS passenger waiting room when it was still young. Beside us, there's a couple of folded newspapers the Eganville Enterprise, the Huntsville Forester, the Ottawa Daily Citizen. So we pick one up and begin to read about the daily news in 1894. August 24th, 1894. The Ottawa Journal. A contractor with a number of men will start next week to build a railway station at Barry's Bay on the Ottawa, Armprior and Parry-Sam railway line. The track is constructed as far as the bay, and passenger and freight trains will soon be running to that point. August 31st, 1894. The Ottawa Journal. An enterprising Cumbermere merchant has purchased a two-decked steamer, 40 feet long, which will be conveyed over the OA and PS Railway to Barry's Bay in September. September 20th, 1894. The San Francisco Chronicle. A young man named Tom French, hailing from Renfrew, says the Ottawa Journal, at Barry's Bay one day last week, went out on the bay in a small bark canoe, trolling for trout. After paddling for quite a while, he observed a large buck coming towards him. When near the canoe, it turned and made for shore, quickly followed by Tom, who, when he came alongside the beauty, saw that his horns were entangled in his troll line, the result being that the canoe and its occupant were pulled towards shore. Joseph Prince then appeared on the scene in another canoe. When the two men, with the aid of their paddles, succeeded in dispatching the noble denizen of the forest. When the exciting battle was over, Tom noticed on the end of his line a 28-pound trout. September 21st, 1894. The Renfrew Mercury... The contract of Mr. M.J. O'Brien on the OA and P.S. railway line will, it is expected, be completed by the end of this week. This will enable the rails to be laid to some distance beyond Barry's Bay. The work west of this, on the Fouquier contract, on which there is a number of subcontractors, is being pushed rapidly forward to completion. September 22, 1894, the Ottawa Journal. The OA and PS Railway has started a steamboat service between the end of their line at Barry's Bay to Cumbermere, a distance of 12 miles. Captain Johnson will be in charge of the boat. October 1st, 1894, the Ottawa Journal. 
The Ottawa Arn Prior and Perry Sound begins scheduled train service today to Barry's Bay with new and elegant passenger cars. The train leaves the Ottawa station at 6 p.m. and is scheduled to arrive in Barry's Bay at 10.10 p.m. In the morning, the return train will leave Barry's Bay at 6 a.m. and arrive back in Ottawa at 10.30 a.m. An earlier train leaves Ottawa at 8 a.m. but only travels as far as Eganville, where it arrives at 10.35 a.m. It leaves Eganville at 3 p.m. and returns to Ottawa at 5.35 p.m. Connection at Renfrew can be made for passenger service on the Kingston and Pembroke Railway. October 6, 1894, the Ottawa Journal. The first and last excursion train of the season via the Ottawa, Armprior and Paris Saint Railway will leave for Barry's Bay via the famous Wilno Pass on Tuesday, October 9th, fare $1.50. The train leaves Ottawa at 7.40 a.m. The scenery surpasses the Adirondacks. October 8, 1894, the Ottawa Journal. E.J. <coughs> Chamberlain, the general manager of the Ottawa Arn Prior and Perry Sound, announced a schedule change of passenger service to Eganville and Barry's Bay. The Barry's Bay train will now leave Ottawa at 7.40 a.m. and arrive in Barry's Bay at 11.35 a.m. The return train leaves Barry's Bay at 1.30 p.m. and gets into Ottawa at 5.30 p.m. The Eganville train leaves Ottawa at 4.15 p.m. and arrives in Eganville at 5.48 p.m. and the return train leaves Eganville at 6.25 a.m. and gets into Ottawa at 8.55 a.m. October 9, 1894, the Ottawa Free Press. Yesterday, a number of the Canada Atlantic Railway officials and several Ottawa citizens of prominence took a run over the new OAMPS railway to Barry's Bay. His Worship, Ottawa Mayor Cox, was among the number, and this morning spoke in great praise of the way in which the line has been built. He declares it to be as fine a piece of railroad as he has seen, nothing having been slighted in the least. At the far end of the line there is an inexhaustible supply of gravel of excellent quality, which provides splendid ballasting material, and the country must open up rapidly as a result of the line, it being all of good quality. He was delighted with the beauties of Golden Lake and speaks of it as the ideal of a sportsman's hunting ground. October 10, 1894. The Ottawa Daily Citizen. Already the precincts of Barry's Bay are shuffling off the construction camp appearance which it took on about two months ago when the Ottawa, Arn Prior and Perry Sound Railway reached this place. The new station will be completed in a week or so and will be as pretty and comfortable a structure of the sort as one would wish to see. So far, the hotel accommodation is next to nil, and travellers are fain to put up with campfires and in different lodgings. Yet the former is of a substantial character, and the latter, albeit rude, is afforded with so much show of hospitality as to make the wayfarer forget almost the rudeness of his surroundings. The establishment, managed by Mr. Mark McNamara, offers the best that the section affords the sportsman 
in the way of bill of fare. The OA and PS road is now running regularly on the new scheduled time to this section. Rails are laid, however, about eight miles further west, and construction is in a forward state 35 miles west of Barry's Bay. At that point, the Whitney Lumber Firm's new mills and depot are being erected, and the railway is expected to reach there this fall. Tomorrow, Barry's Bay will be visited by an excursion party, gotten up by the Masonic fraternity of Renfrew, the pioneer of many a merrymaking to come, for this place, with charming scenery and beautiful water stretches, is bound to become a famous resort for sportsmen and tourists. A steam launch has already been placed on the bay, which is an expansion of the Madawaska River. October 12, 1894, the Ottawa Journal. The rails of the OAMPS Railway have now reached Carson Lake, five miles west of Barry's Bay. The work along the whole line to Whitney is being pushed vigorously and long stretches are ready for the ties and rails. A new steamboat for the Madawaska, which is to run from Barry's Bay on the OAMPS Railway to Cumbermere, has been launched and will at once commence to carry passengers and freight. October 16, 1894, the Ottawa Free Press. Toronto. At the Chancery Divisional Court yesterday, the second round of the long-fought contest between the Ottawa Arnprior and Parry Sound Railway Company and the Atlantic and Northwest Railway Company resulted in a victory for the latter with costs. The former will, however, shortly enter a further appeal to restore the newly dissolved injunction, which until now has prevented the latter company from laying their line in a certain way in Carleton County. October 18, 1894 the Ottawa Daily Citizen. At a meeting of the Provincial Board of Health held on Tuesday, Dr. Bryce, the Secretary, read his report, Malaria on the Madawaska, which subject had been brought to his attention by communications from the village of Cumbermere, a place of 150 population. He made personal investigations into the unsanitary conditions of the village, which, it was maintained, was caused by the flooding of the land for a distance of over 12 miles in consequence of Palmer's Dam used for floating logs down the stream. This dam, when the water was suddenly drawn off to carry the logs down, left large areas of drowned land uncovered, which then became covered with green growth, emitted disagreeable odors, and inuriously affected the water in the wells of the village, thereby jeopardizing the health of the residents some of whom had been taken ill through drinking it. The residents desired to have the dam removed. Dr. Bryce suggested in his report that, as in no very long time the driving of logs here would cease and the dam then become useless, and as no very serious effect had yet been produced, some arrangements should be come to, whereby cellars of new houses now flooded should be filled up and replaced by larders built off the kitchens and that wells should be driven into sandy soil, where the water is only a few feet below the surface, and not, therefore, to be affected by the overflow from the river. The report was adopted. October 20th, 1894, the Ottawa Journal. The deer hunting season in Ontario opens today, October 20th, and closes on November 15th. Dogs are allowed to be used during the whole season and no additional time is allowed for still hunting as there used to be. 
A person is permitted to shoot but two deer per season. It is illegal to shoot a fawn. For a first violation of any of the regulations of the statute, a fine of $20 is provided. The penalty for a second offence is a $50 fine and three months imprisonment. The season in the province of Quebec opened on October 1st and closes on January 1st. However, dogs are not allowed to be used at all. Quite a number of hunting parties have already left Ottawa and many others are being organised. The objective point of most of them is Barry's Bay, up the OA and PS Railway. Throughout Golden Lake, Clear Lake and the country about Barry's Bay, deer are reported to be very numerous. The other points that are attracting the hunters are the Madawaska country, Calabogie on the Kingston and Pembroke Railway and Muskoka. The best Quebec districts in this vicinity are the Picanook and the Upper Dulievre. October 26, 1894, the Ottawa Daily Citizen. A distinguished party of Americans are in Ottawa, en route to a place 25 miles above Barry's Bay, where they are to hunt. The party includes Colonel E.C. Smith, the president of the Central Vermont Railway, and a son of the late ex-governor Smith of Vermont. The colonel is accompanied by his wife, Mrs. Smith, the Honourable Herbert Brennan, the general baggage agent of the same railway, and his wife were also part of the entourage. Mr. F.W. Baldwin, general superintendent, and his lady were among the passengers, as well as Mr. <coughs> F.E. Chamberlain, the president's secretary, and the brother of E.J. Chamberlain of the Canada Atlantic Railway and the general manager of the OA and P.S. Railway. The Honourable F. Stuart Shanahan, secretary treasurer of the National Car Company of St. Albans, rounds out the group along with Mr. F. Walworth Smith and his wife. The party arrived here on a special train Wednesday evening. The train included a special combination observation engine and Wagner car, Colonel Smith's private car, and a baggage car. The party were given a healthy reception by the officials of the CAR. They leave this morning for Madawaska. Yesterday, they dined at the Russell. The observation engine is fitted with a platform from whence travellers can view the countryside. October 27, 1894. The Ottawa Daily Citizen. Chased by a wolf, an Ottawa boy's pluck and coolness in a trying situation. By and by, when the hunters return from the west and the north, there will be bear stories galore and no end of bush tales generally. But in advance of the Nimrod's return, there comes from Barry's Bay an account of an Ottawa boy's pursuit by a wolf, quite as thrilling as any sportsman are likely to relate. Alexander Blanchett, broker of Mr. Charles Blanchett, barrister of Ottawa, is employed on the engineering staff of contractor Heald of the Ottawa Arnprior and Perry Sound Railway and is quartered at a snug little hotel about two miles west of Barry's Bay, kept by William Martin. Mr. Martin also runs a post office. Friday afternoon, a Mrs. Henry went to Martin's to mail letters, expecting her husband to call and accompany her home. But as the evening wore on, and Mr. Henry failed to turn up, the lady decided to return alone. Mr. Blanchett, volunteered to escort her home, and the two set out for the bay. 
It was quite dark when they reached a cedar swamp about half a mile from the post office. Suddenly, from the forest, came the yelp of a wolf. Instinctively, they turned back and started to run for their lives. Fortunately, Mr. Blanchett knew enough to hold on to the lantern, although the terrified woman begged him to throw it away, for the light kept the wolf at bay, although the brute followed at their heels, snarling and howling, almost till the hotel door was reached. It was a long run uphill, and what with the exertion and fright, Mrs. Henry was terribly used up. Such was the effect upon the woman's nerves of the night's misadventure, that it was not until next evening that the hostess of the hotel would allow her to be driven home. Wolves have of late appeared in considerable numbers near Barry's Bay, and besides committing depredations upon the settlers, flocks have attacked dogs used by hunters in chasing deer. Of a large pack of hounds taken by an American hunting party into Pog Lake, about six miles from the post office, several have been so severely bitten by wolves as to be rendered useless for the chase. October 29, 1894, the Ottawa Free Press. In the annals of the Ottawa Enquirer and Paris Saint Railway, Saturday night's accident will be chronicled as the first that has occurred on that line. From information given, it appears a freight and construction train were backing into the Ottawa yards together near Preston Street. The steam having been shut off in the engine of the construction train, the drawbar uniting both became dislodged at one end and, falling, caught in one of the ties. The freight engine continued in motion, and as a consequence, a merchandise car to which the bar was attached was raised and canted to one side. The other train moving up caught the misplaced car and threw it, as well as three other cattle cars, to the side of the road. In the latter were some 300 head of sheep. As soon as the doors were opened, these scampered out, some of them falling into a pool of water where they were drowned. Eighteen in all were wounded or killed. All Saturday night, and part of yesterday, the hoisting engine was at work replacing the wrecked cars, and last night the road was clear of all obstruction. The total loss will not reach more than $600, and officials consider the company very lucky in view of the nature of the accident. November 2nd, 1894. The Eganville Enterprise. On the OA and PS line west of Wilno, there is a sinkhole which causes the company a good deal of trouble and expense and is continually sinking and requiring more ballast. A few days ago, while a train was passing, one side sank 18 inches, nearly throwing the last of the cars off the track. November 3rd, 1894, the Ottawa Daily Citizen. Prospective postal improvements. Speaking yesterday of the prospect of an early completion of the Ottawa, Armprior and Parisan Railway, Lieutenant Colonel White, Deputy Postmaster General, said that when the line had been run through to the waters of Georgian Bay, it would probably involve considerable change in the mail routes to Nipissing, Algoma and other sections of the West. To many important centres of population, it will mean a reduction of at least 12 hours in the time of delivery of mails from Ottawa and Montreal. So, as soon as the road has been opened for traffic to Whitney, about 40 miles above the present passenger terminus of Barry's Bay, mails will be dispatched daily to places of business importance that are now served not more frequently than tri-weekly, and over one of the out-of-the-way routes at that.
November 5, 1894, The Ottawa Daily Citizen. Mr. John Terence has returned to Ottawa from the country back of Barry's Bay, where he shot two deer and purchased several others. November 9, 1894, The Renfrew Mercury. The steel on the OAMPS is now laid as far as the crossing of the Madawaska, 20 miles west of Barry's Bay. The building of the bridge will delay them for some days, as the building could not be commenced until the steel reached that point, to bring in the necessary stone, cement, and iron superstructure for the bridge. November 13, 1894. The Renfrew Mercury. British buyers say they prefer sawn dimension lumber as opposed to square timber, because it is easier to ship. The timber limits around the Ottawa district, 6,758 miles, produced $21,395 in ground rent. November 13, 1894, the Ottawa Daily Citizen. An official inspection of the 10 miles constituting the western section of the Ottawa, Armprior and Paris Saint Railway, so far completed, took place yesterday. The inspection was performed by Mr. Lynch, the government engineer, who made a thorough examination of the newly constructed road. The 10 miles lie between Barry's Bay, commencing at a point two miles east of the new station in Barry's Bay, and a point a short distance from the forks of the Apiongo River. This completes 115 miles of the OAMPS from Ottawa. The portion gone over yesterday was constructed by contractor Fauquier. It involved no grave engineering difficulties, but necessitated a good deal of work in cuts and fills. From Barry's Bay, the line runs out at Devil Grave to the shores of Carson Lake. Along the bank of this lake, there is a considerable stretch of heavy embankment, the work being solidly constructed so as to give a first-class road bed. Towards the forks, the rock cuttings increase in magnitude, but these have all been taken out to a generous width while easy grades and broad curves maintain the excellent character of this important road. The Natty Station building at Barry's Bay and the train accommodation there must have made a favourable impression upon the inspecting engineer. November 15, 1894. The Ottawa Journal. The OA and PS Railway Company has been petitioned to build a station halfway between Barry's Bay and Killaloo. November 19, 1894, The Ottawa Daily Citizen. The Pontiac Advance reports that a new stage line has been opened between Cumbermere and Barry's Bay by Mr. Hudson, hotel keeper of Cumbermere. Its purpose is to connect with the OAMPS rail line. It is also reported that a large pulp factory is to be started on the line of the OAMPS about 35 miles west of Barry's Bay by an American firm. Mr. William Martin, the popular postmaster who resides two miles west of Barry's Bay, intends in a few weeks to remove his post office to Barry's Bay, which will be more convenient for merchants and others. November 20th, 1894. The Ottawa Daily Citizen. E.J. Chamberlain, general manager of the OA and PS Railway, returned last evening from a trip up the line. He states that the rails will be laid today to a distance of five miles from Whitney, and trains will be running sometime next week to that point, which is 144 miles distant from Ottawa. 
Construction will stop at this point for the winter, although the rock work will be continued throughout the winter. November 20th, 1894, the Ottawa Journal. A very sad accident on the OAMPS railway occurred yesterday near the Egan Estate Depot, just west of Madawaska. The steel train was conveying a gang of men from camp to work after dinner. The men were seated on the platform cars as the train moved along to the spot where the gang had been working in the forenoon. Four men were riding at the rear of the tender, sitting on the toolbox with their feet supported upon the coupling of the flat car next to the tender. The roughness of the road caused the coupling pin to drop out unnoticed by the men and the engine and car separated. The separation caused the four men to lose their balance and they tumbled off the tender. The two men nearest each rolled off at the side of the track. The other two were not so fortunate. One of them fell directly on the rails and was instantly run over and killed. The other fell between the rails underneath the train. He miraculously escaped death, but received a dreadful shaking up. The name of the man killed was William J. Chug. He lived with his mother in Ottawa on Preston Street, south of the railway bridge. The man injured, whose name is James McGowan, is also a resident of Ottawa. E.J. Chamberlain, general manager of the OAMPS Railway, from whom the journal gleaned the particulars of the accident, happened to be at the upper end of the line yesterday when the accident occurred. He arrived at the scene of the accident about four hours after it took place, and at once wired to Pembroke to have the coroner, Dr. Dixon, hold an inquest. The body of Chug was brought down to Barry's Bay to await the coroner's arrival, and a coffin was set up in which to place the body. Mr. Chamberlain brought the injured man McGowan down to Ottawa on his special train, and on the train's arrival at the Elgin Street Depot, an ambulance was in waiting to convey McGowan to the Protestant Hospital. Inquiry at the hospital today finds that none of McGowan's bones were broken, but he is very sore from the severe shaking up he received. November 23, 1894, the Ottawa Journal. Navvies are coming down now, off the Berries Bay to Galeary Lake job. Winter options will be limited to clearing and blasting mostly. The navvies are a mixed lot, dark complexioned and stunted in size, probably Italian and Polish, where swarthy complexions abound. November 27, 1894, the Ottawa Free Press. General cessation of work among the construction gangs of the OA and PS road has now commenced, and by this time next week will have been completed. Mr. M. Delaney, construction foreman for Mr. William Heald, the furthest western contractor, arrived down in Ottawa last night with his gang of men. In conversation with the Free Press, he said that the road was now graded up to the end of the contracts at Whitney, and the steel will be laid to that point by Saturday, or at latest on Monday next. The work has been carried on with great dispatch and satisfaction to all, each of the half-dozen contractors having been fortunate in securing excellent staffs of steady men. Mr Delaney, who has had wide experience of railway work on the continent, says it is one of the finest and most substantial roads built in Canada or anywhere else, and each contractor out of the half-dozen take pride in his section of the road. There is a large amount of trestle work on the last section, and there are a number of men at work in that department. But otherwise, the road is now deserted of men who are making their way towards Ottawa to winter in the city and environs. 
November 30th, 1894, the Renfrew Mercury. The divisional point on the OA and PS will be at the Madawaska Bridge on the property of J.R. Booth. Engineers are laying out the grounds which will be put in on completion of the railway to that point. December 1st, 1894, Canadian Lumberman, Renfrew. E.C. Whitney's sawmill at Galeary Lake on the Ottawa and Paris Sound Railway is nearing completion. The building is erected and ready for the machinery, which will be put in on completion of the railway to that point. December 7, 1894, the Renfrew Mercury. Barry's Bay is threatened with the removal of its station and water tank to a point four miles west. Disputes between the landowners and the railroad company respecting land required by the company is the cause. December 14, 1894, Huntsville Forester. The OA and PS is now completed to a point 147 miles westward of Ottawa and will be finished to Paris Sound next summer. There are vast timber limits all the way and already sawmills are being prospected and erected. The American mill at Galeary Lake is now frame built and only awaits the completion of steel laying to bring in their machinery. In a day or two, work on the OA and PS will have reached an end. There is only 60 miles to be built next season to complete the line to Parry Sound. By the end of the week, the 1,500 men working on the site will be discharged. More than 2,000 were employed all season, and the trains coming eastward are to be seen crowded every day with returning laborers, principally Italians. During the winter, only survey work will be done. December 29, 1894, the Ottawa Journal. A man named Joseph Pelsky, employed in a shanty near Galeary Lake, had one of his legs badly crushed by a falling tree on Thursday. He was brought down on the OA and PS Railway last evening and taken to the Water Street Hospital in Ottawa. Mr. Chamberlain, general manager of the line, had a train sent from Barry's Bay to Galeary Lake to pick up the sufferer. And in consequence, the regular evening train was two hours late in reaching Ottawa. Sometimes it's interesting to read old newspapers to get a detailed sense of her history. Sometimes, though, it takes a longer, wider view to see how things work, to see the reasons why something exists or why something fails to survive. In 1964, one of our great Canadian railroad historians, Omar Lavallee, turned his considerable talent to the old Ottawa, Arnprior and Parry Sound Railroad just shortly after our local passenger service came to its inevitable end. We thought you might like to hear what he had to say about the reasons why the tracks outside that were once going clickety-clack would soon do so no more. The principal motivating factor behind the construction of the Canada Atlantic Railway between Ottawa and the international boundary near East Albert, Vermont in the 1880s was the conveyance of lumber and the allied products from the valley of the Ottawa, above our nation's capital, to a direct connection with the railways of the eastern United States. The Canada Atlantic was the project of Ottawa's lumber baron, John Rodolphus Booth, and its financing was principally through bonds owned by Booth and his family, rather than by the more normal channels of equity capital. 
Within a short time of its opening between Ottawa and Coteau, Quebec in 1883, it was established an operating liaison with the Grand Trunk, and through passenger train operating between Montreal and Coteau over the Grand Trunk, and from Coteau to Ottawa from the Canada Atlantic Railway, it offered a prestige service in an era when the efforts of most railways, in Canada at least, were turned towards development rather than refinement. In the late 1880s, this service was, at least, able to boast that it offered Canada's first electrically illuminated trains. Later, as the 19th century drew to a close, three high-speed Baldwin-built Vauclan compound 442-type engines gave neighboring and parallel Canadian Pacific services serious competition and spirited rivalry. One of these locomotives boasted the largest driving wheels ever provided a Canadian railway locomotive, 84 and a quarter inches in diameter. Once his basic services were established and operating, Booth turned his attention westward to his extensive land holdings in the wilderness lying between Ottawa and Georgian Bay, which lay partly in what is now Algonquin Park, and in 1888 incorporated two railway companies, the Ottawa Arn Prior and Renfrew Railway Company, and the Ottawa and Perry Sound Railway Company. These charters carried powers to build respectively from Ottawa to Renfrew and from Renfrew to what is now Scotia on the Toronto North Bay Railway. After acquiring rights-of-way and other concomitant property necessary to construction, the true purpose of the two companies was shown in 1891 when they were amalgamated as the Ottawa, Arn Pryor, and Perry Sound Railway Company. Surveying the route was carried on under the personal direction of the Chief Engineer of the Canada Atlantic, Mr. George A. Mountain, and a route chosen following the valley of the Madawaska into the interior. Construction was begun in 1892, and in May 1893, the first 36-mile section was opened to traffic between the capital and Arn Pryor. The Ottawa Journal carried a long and detailed account of this event. Quote, the first passenger coach over the Ottawa Arn Prior and Perry Sound Railway was run between the capital and Arn Prior yesterday. It was a special for operating purposes, and on board were Mr. and Mrs. John R. Booth, Mr. George A. Mountain, Chief Engineer, and other officials of the new line. Considering that the road is not yet ballasted, the run was made in splendid style, an average of 25 miles an hour being made. The special left the Elgin Street station at 8.30 on the flight to the west. After crossing the trestle work at Preston Street, a magnificent view is presented to the sightseer. The first point of importance reached on the way is Carp Village, 19 miles west of Ottawa, and by the number of freight cars standing on the siding, a stranger would be apt to think the road had been in running order for ever so long. Here, everything is bustle. Kinburn, eight miles further west, is next reached, and it may be stated that these eight miles are the straightest piece of railroad line in America. Kinburn is a pretty little village, surrounded by very rich agricultural country, and the evidence of its producing qualities can be seen in the grain shed erected close to the siding, into which farmers are constantly pouring their grain for shipment. At this point, the bustle witnessed at the carp station is repeated, only in greater volume. 
As the train spread through there yesterday, 19 teams were very busy unloading their cereal binders. Galata is the next point of importance reached. Here, the Mississippi is spanned by a magnificent steel bridge of the most modern pattern and great strength. The iron superstructure rests upon two massive stone abutments and an equally massive pier in midstream. The cut water of the pier, as well as all the masonry, is built to resist not only the river currents and freshets, but it looks strong enough to successfully resist even the hand of time itself. Arn Pryor, an ambitious town of 3,000 residents, was reached a few minutes after 10 o'clock. This bustling little hive is in overjoyed at the building of the Perry Sound Railway, for they expect and not without good and sufficient reasons, that the new road will give a boon to everything. The chief industry of the town is the great sawmills of the McLaughlin brothers, who employ about 700 men and have an annual output of 85 million feet of lumber. Next week, work on the new railway bridge spanning the Madawaska will be commenced. It will be an iron superstructure resting on stonework. As soon as the weather permits... Ballasting trains will be put on the road, and the ballasting completed at the very earliest moment. The rails on the road are Sheffield Manufacturer, weighing 72 pounds to the yard. They are the best rail in the market. When all the ties are laid, there will be 3,000 to the mile, some 350 more to the mile than any railway in the Dominion. The idea of placing additional ties is to solidify the roadbed. As the road is today, coaches glide smoothly, but when the additional ties are placed and the ballasting completed, there will not be a jolt, and the road will be capable of bearing a speed of a mile a minute. Freighting on the new road is very active. This morning, the engine Nellie Bly, with Jay King at the lever, and Jay Blythe's assistant, took up ten cars of merchandise and four empty boxcars. The train was in charge of Conductor A. O'Boyle and Mr. Snickelson and Aris as brakeman. Following the opening to Arnprior, construction was held up while the dispute with the Canadian Pacific was resolved before the Board of Railway Commissioners relating to the laying of a level crossing over the CP by the OANPS just to the west of the station. In testimony before the board, Mr. Booth contended that the overhead crossing of the CPR in the PN Township, just to the west of Ottawa, was put in on the understanding that the CPR would not oppose a level crossing in Arnfriar, but the CP denied this. The board, however, ruled in favor of the Perry Sound Railway, permitting the crossing 500 feet west of the station so that long trains on either line stopped at Arnfriar would not interfere with the other railway. Shortly afterwards, open litigation between the OA and PS and the Canadian Pacific flared again when the two rails contested the use of Haggerty Pass, a narrow defile in the Apiangu Mountains to the rest of Renfrew. But once again, the booth interests emerged victorious and construction was carried on from Arnprior and Golden Lake over the pass to Barry's Bay and Madawaska by September 1894. Twisting and curving its way over the rocky overlay of the Laurentian Shield, the Ottawa Arn Prior and Perry Sound reached Cache Lake in what is now Algonquin Park in May 1895 
and it reached the Toronto North Bay line of the Grand Trunk on December 1st, 1896. The terrain was hilly and mountainous west of Golden Lake, the hills reaching an elevation of 1,021 feet at Hagerty Pass after a seven-mile climb from Killaloo Station on an average grade of 1%. The maximum summit of 1,605 feet was reached at the watershed between Brule Lake and Rainy Lake, 27 miles east of Scotia. While the last section was being completed, the Parry Sound Line acquired and amalgamated with the Parry Sound Colonization Railway, enabling it to reach Georgian Bay at Depot Harbour, 396.6 miles from the junction with the Central Vermont Railway of East Arlberg. In 1899, the OANPS was absorbed into the parent Canada Atlantic Railway Company. Though construction of the OANPS was motivated originally by the lumber traffic, the extension to Georgia Bay was made with the intention of providing a new route eastward. Wheat grain elevators were built at Depot Harbor, and ships were chartered on the Great Lakes under the title of the Canada Atlantic Transit Company. This diversification brought with it other problems quite unconnected with the lumber industry which had given it birth, such as the provision of the deep water channels at Deep Harbor and at Koto Landing. The booths accordingly decided to divest themselves of their railway system, and it was sold to the Grand Trunk Railway of Canada in 1905 for £2,880,000 sterling. The transfer of ownership did not come about before bids had been received from other roads, such as the Canadian Northern, and the New York-owned Rutland Railroad, of which the Canada Atlantic would have been a natural extension. Both in its independent phase and while under the control of the Grand Trunk, the erstwhile Ottawa, Arnprior and Parry Sound was divided into two operating subdivisions one extending 130 miles from Ottawa to Madawaska, and the other from Madawaska along the remaining 134 miles to Depot Harbor. Madawaska was provided with a yard and extensive engine terminal facilities. The remains of the Grand Trunk era concrete roundhouse and shop remain to this day, abandoned to the wilderness. A Grand Trunk timetable for the summer of 1908 shows daily except Sunday, passenger service in both directions between Ottawa and Depot Harbour. Westbound number 53 left Ottawa at 11.50 a.m. and arrived at Depot Harbour at 9.20 p.m. The corresponding eastern service, number 52, left Depot Harbour at 7.15 a.m. and arrived at Ottawa at 4.30 p.m. The two trains crossed at Eagleville, went on time. Two known logging railways fed lumber to the Canada Atlantic Railway, lines in the area between Madawaska and Whitney. One, the Egan Estates Railway, also known as the Macaulay Central Railway, which was also owned by the Booth family, operated a line north for about 15 miles of Booth Lake and Shirley Lake. It connected with the OANPS at Egan Estates Junction, four and a half miles west of Madawaska. Another line, the Whitney and Apiango Railway, ran north from Whitney for 14 miles to Apiango Lake. The Whitney and Apiango connection is now used as a Y by Canadian National Railways at Whitney, the present western terminus of the line. Both logging railways were abandoned more than 30 years ago. The Ottawa Depot Harbour line remained intact until 1933, when a washout, said to have been caused by a beaver dam, 
interrupted the connection between two rivers and Algonquin Park stations, about six miles apart. Operation between the two stations was discontinued effective March 1st of that year, but the rails were not dismantled until 1940 to 1942. On December 31st, 1946, operation was discontinued between Whitney Y, mile 145.94, and Two Rivers, mile 162.40, and the track lifted in the summer of 1952. Westward from Algonquin Park to Kearney, operation was discontinued in May 1959, and track dismantled immediately. The line west of Scotia was abandoned in 1955. Today, the rails of the former Ottawa, Arnprior and Perry Sound Railway end in the woods, 220 miles short of Georgian Bay, just as they did when the line was under construction 70 years ago. Much of the line is still laid with 72-pound rail with OANPS markings, but Canadian National Diesels, with smooth and unhurried efficiency, now perform the meagre services. As sad as the end of the railroad era may be to some, it's also good to know that there were and still are many people who won't let that old clickety-clack go off into, hist- into the history books alone. There are more than a few railroad buffs who still come into this station every summer. They tell us about the world that used to be, the tickets they once held to ride past and visit stations like this one in its glory days. Perhaps one of the most interesting and poignant stories we thought you might like to hear was written by someone who came up here from Ottawa and went to Whitney two years after we no longer had scheduled passenger service here. His name was Fred Angus, and he took a special excursion train past this very station in 1964. Sunday, May 24, 1964, was a cool, sunny day in Ottawa as more than 200 rail enthusiasts prepared to board a special Canadian National Railway train at Union Station. The occasion was the Ottawa Rail Fans Excursion, sponsored by Bill Williams and Al Barr, to Whitney, Ontario over more than half of the former Ottawa, Arnprior, and Perry Sound Railroad. Precisely at 8.30 a.m., the six-car train hauled by CNA Unit 6779 and consisting of baggage car 9131, cafeteria car 424, and coaches 3241, 3211, 5622, and 5431 left the station to start the 12-hour, 297-mile round trip. The line had been built in the 1890s as the Ottawa, Arnprior and Perry Sound Railway, which was a company formed by the amalgamation of the Ottawa, Arnprior and Renfrew Railway and the Ottawa and Perry Sound Railway Company. The OA and PS was controlled by J.R. Booth Interests and was, in effect, a westward extension of the Canada Atlantic Railway to connect with the Great Lakes at Georgian Bay and so provide a route eastward from the lakes via the OANPS and Canada Atlantic Railways. 
1899, the line was formerly absorbed by the parent Canada Atlantic and in 1905 was sold with the rest of the Canadian Atlantic Railway to the Grand Trunk, finally becoming, in 1923, a part of the Canadian National Railways. After 1940, abandonments took place in the western portions of the former OA and PS. At first, the line was cut near two rivers because of a washout, but by 1959, the abandonment had been extended to include the whole line west of Whitney. Passenger service between Ottawa and Barry's Bay survived until 1962, but that too now is gone, so this trip was the first over this line for many of the excursionists. Leaving Ottawa, the train ran 15 miles to the Beechburg subdivision, then entered the Renfrew subdivision, on which it continued the remainder of the trip to Whitney. The first stop took place at Armprior, where a run past was made. The next 45 miles was covered without stopping, while the scenery changed gra gradually to a more rugged character as the train passed into the Laurentian Shield. After a photo stop at Golden Lake, the most spectacular part of the trip began as the line climbed up the Haggerty Pass on a continuous grade with many curves, reminiscent of the now abandoned Montfort subdivision north of Montreal. The line became more level beyond Wilno, 1,021 feet above sea level, but continued gradually upward to more than 1,200 feet at Whitney. At Madawaska, a run was made on the bridge over the Madawaska River, and the participants were afforded the opportunity of inspecting the ruins of the Grand Trunk Roundhouse. This structure, which was used for less than 20 years in the 1910 to 1930 period, gave the impression of an ancient Roman ruin rather than a 20th century railway building. The turntable pit and decaying cross ties showed its true origin. Another 16 miles carried the special to Whitney, the present end of the line. Here, the only shower of the day caused many to remain aboard while the engine and baggage car were turned on the Y, leaving the cafe car to bring up the rear on the return journey. By this time, the rain had stopped and the excursionists spent the half hour remaining exploring the area. It was seen that much of the rail near the station bore the inscription, Camels Toughened Steel W1895 Section OA and PS Railway, revealing that this was the original rail with which the line had been laid nearly 70 years ago and in continuous use since that time. Leaving Whitney, the train proceeded east. Another run past was held about two miles out of Whitney, then a stop at Barry's Bay to inspect the old wooden water tank, still in good condition, although now, alas, empty. No further stops were made, and as the sun started the set, the train began passing through the suburbs of Ottawa, which was reached at 8.40 p.m. This concludes our story for tonight. We want to thank you for coming out to help us to celebrate not just the 125th birthday of this wonderful old station, but to help us remember that it's really not about the timber and nails that are 125 years old tonight. It's really about remembering the sweat equity of those nameless navvies 
who once built the railroads of this country. It's about the Tomlinson brothers who built this station. It's really about those thousands of people who passed through the front door of this station, came into the waiting room, walked over to the telegraph counter over 125 years ago today. It's really about the arrivals and departures that left an impression of true character upon this town. It's about our own culture and our heritage. I'm Karen Yakabuski, and for Kristen Marshawn, Danielle and Roger Paul, and Heather Paulquin, and our producer Barry Conway, we wish you well, and we do hope to see you back here long before the 250th birthday celebration of this fine station. Good night and good luck.